The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good to see you guys. How are we doing? Uh, Good to be with you. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing our series, Disconnected. And today we're talking about brokenness as it relates to our sexuality. Now, you have been warned this message is going to be PG-13, and I know that many of you are thinking, well, isn't that every Sunday that Gary preaches? (laughs) It's always kind of that way. Uh, But keep this in mind if you have young ones. Um, I'm going to pray, and if you need to remove young ones from here, I understand, we understand. Um, let Let me pray for us today. God, we thank you for the gift of sexuality. We thank you for the gift of sex and what it means and what you mean for it to mean. And uh, we thank you for um, how good you are and that you give us good gifts. I pray, God, this morning that my um, words are measured, that my tone is measured. I pray that you give everyone here um, ears to hear this morning. I pray that where there needs to be conviction, there would be conviction. But I also pray for anyone that's living in shame at the moment, would they would receive grace and mercy today, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. So um, if you look at your bulletin, you'll see some recommended resources that I've laid out for you. I can't cover everything in this talk, so I'm not going to try to, but I'll point you to some books you can read that are really, really helpful and written by some people I really, really respect. So you should know by now that we are not afraid to talk about this topic of sexuality. But that's not always been true for the church. I want to give you a quick tour through church history and what many of these old guys thought about sexuality. This first guy's name is Clement. And uh, he said sex was not for pleasure, but only for reproduction. And that's why he looks so sad in that photo. (laughs) Then there's Tertullian and Ambrose. They both preferred the extinction of the human race rather than for people to engage sexually. And then we have Origen. He thought sex was evil. In fact, he taught that Song of Solomon was not about husband and wife, but was about God and Israel. Have you read Song of Solomon? If you read that book and it's about God and Israel, that's just awkward, right? And so we have, next we have Gregory of Nyssa. He taught that Adam and Eve were created without sexual desire, and if the fall had not occurred, the human race would have reproduced in some other way. I'm not even sure how that would even work, right? And then we have John Chrysostom. He taught Adam and Eve could not have had sex before the fall, which doesn't make a lot of sense. So as a result of sin, God's going to banish them from the garden and sentence them to a lifetime of lovemaking? That doesn't make any sense to me, Right? And then we have this guy named Jerome. If he experienced sexual desire, he would throw himself into briar bushes, creating pain so as to distract himself. He would also beat his chest with a rock. This guy was hardcore. And then we have Augustine. Before becoming a Christian, he did engage sexually in a sinful way. But after his conversion, he said, it's not that sex is wrong in marriage, But the passion associated with sex was sinful. He even counseled married couples to not have sex. This next guy, 
St. Francis is very, very interesting. He did something very, very strange. He would take snow and create the form of a woman's body, and then he would cuddle with them to quiet his sexual desire. You might say that's what inspired this song. I don't know. Maybe. Just a thought. You're as cold as ice. You're willing to sacrifice our love. But this raises a really, really important question. How did this become public knowledge? Because either he told someone or someone saw him doing this. And I'm not sure which is more awkward. Another question is, how did he become a saint? He became a saint, St. Francis. Then we have uh, Pope Gregory the Great. Early 6th century, he began limiting when sex was allowed and not allowed for married couples. So the Catholic Church telling people when they could and could not have sex for married people. I say he's just a bitter, single pope. That's what that was about. So as crazy as all this sounds, this is a tour through church history of sexuality, but the church today can still see sexuality in negative light. I mean, growing up, I rarely heard a positive talk on sexuality. If I were to summarize for you every talk I heard on sexuality, it would be with this word. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Don't do it. You're going to get a disease. You're going to get someone pregnant. This was in the early... Remember that guy, Magic Johnson? Remember Magic Johnson? When he, got HIV, when he was contracted HIV, everyone's just now terrified about STDs and stuff. And so this terrified me. I never heard a positive message on sexuality growing up. And so even though we're discussing sexual brokenness today, I still want you to see the positive and what God's intent and design is for us sexually. So turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 20. In this section of Romans, Paul has just said, he's just talked about the revelation of God's righteousness in uh, the first part of chapter 1. And now he's explaining the wrath of God against sin in the second part of Romans chapter 1. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What Paul is talking about here is general revelation. The idea that we can look at what's been made and see something about God in the creation. Now this verse is not a direct statement about sexuality, but I want you to see the bigger point. God's eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen in what he has made. The visible always reveals something about the invisible. So all of creation, what we see, experience, reveals something about God's nature. Just like art reveals something about the artist, we might say everything created tells us something about the creator. And this is true even of sexuality. Even sex tells us something about God. 
who he is. We'll come back to this idea a little bit later on, but here's what you and I tend to do. Instead of allowing the creation to point us to the creator, we allow the creation to replace the creator, and we commit idolatry. And we do this. We see it in Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Whenever we see passages on idolatry and we see thoughts about idols and images and animals, we think, we don't do that today. That was like ancient world stuff, idolatry. What you must remember, though, is whenever the ancient world would bow down to a physical idol, it would always represent something that we would worship today. So it might represent power, sex, money, comfort. And they'd worship the physical idol, but that just signified the things that you and I worship in the here and now today. We still have the same idols today. Look in this passage again. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Whenever we exchange the creator with the creation, people who seem wise by the world's standards end up looking the fool. I think of this past weekend when I turned on the news and I saw the best owner in the NFL, Robert Kraft, six-time champion, was caught soliciting a prostitute. Someone who is brilliant by the world's standards, wise by the world's standards, is now being made to look a fool because he exchanged the creation with the creator. We take good gifts from God and we turn them into God. I think you and I do this all the time. Paul's talking about the unbelieving culture, but you and I do this all the time. We take gifts from God and turn them into God. I think sexuality might be the one of the most obvious ways in which we do this. But as you and I chase our idols, we're usually trying to satisfy some deep longing that God has placed within us. It's actually a good and right longing. So I want to look at some longings with you. Intimacy and covenant. These are good. These are right. These are given to us by God. And if all of creation says something about the creator, what does sexuality say about God? Well, it says he created us for intimacy. He created us for covenant. And these are good things that God's given to us. It is human nature to want to know someone and be known by someone intimately. And joined with that is a desire for covenant. Recently, my wife and I, my daughter, were sitting at the dinner table. My wife is really good at asking our kids deep, thought-provoking questions. And she looks at my daughter and she says, Sienna, what are some things you've been thinking about lately? And Sienna gets this big smile on her face and she says, I've been thinking about, I just wish I knew who my husband was going to be. And I'm thinking, girl, you are eight. And so the next day, I went out and bought a rocking chair and a shotgun. (laughs) And now I just need a front porch to sit on. But even when we're young, we have these longings. These are good 
and right. They're given to us by God. I'll say a word to parents. If your teen ever comes to you and expresses romantic desire, the first thing you need to do is to affirm the longing and say, well, God's, God's designed you for that. God's made you this way. Your desire for intimacy and covenant, these are good, godly desires. These are not evil in and of themselves. There's wisdom. We're going to use a lot of discernment and wisdom, ask lots and lots of questions. We worry about when, how, and who, but affirm the longing first. If you want to send your kid off into sin, just pat them on the head, tell them how silly they are. When you diminish the longing, you potentially will send your kid off into sin. And so these things are good, they're right, they're given to us by God, but they set us up to believe some lies. So I want to look with you in the next verse, verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The first exchange we talked about was replacing the creator with his creation. The second exchange is truth for lies. Whenever you and I seek to fulfill God-given desires in ways that God did not intend, we have a tendency to fall for lies. There might be no other issue where this happens more than sexuality. The first lie I want to talk about is sex is nothing. I think we see this in our world today. If you ask people, is sex a big deal or no big deal, most will say it's no big deal. Sex is nothing. Just avoid unwanted pregnancies, STDs. We should be free. Consent is the only rule. Sex can be as meaningful or meaningless as we want it to be. And I would just say that in God's economy, we don't get to ascribe meaninglessness or meaningfulness to sexuality. It's always meaningful. It is always sacred. And what you see in our culture is this hypocrisy where if someone is sexually assaulted, someone gets arrested and goes to jail most likely because even in our secular culture, we recognize that something very sacred and special and meaningful was taken from this person. So we cannot say sex is nothing. We hear phrases like casual sex, hookup culture. There are apps on the phone to hook up with people. But just because the culture has bought into this lie, sex is nothing, it doesn't mean it's working out for them. There's a book by Donna Freitas where she highlights this. This is called The End of Sex, How Hookup Culture is Leaving a Generation Unhappy and Sexually Unfulfilled. In this book, and she is not a Christian, but sees problems with the hookup culture. She says, they're really ambivalent about the sex they're having. According to everything they see in pop culture, they're supposed to be having a great, great time, but it's rare I find a young person who says hooking up is the best thing ever. She goes on to say, in reality, it seems to empty them out. There's a sort of soullessness fostered in the hookup culture. There's a learned callousness. Sex is something you're not to care about. It's almost like their job to get it done. 
So an unbeliever talking to other unbelievers about sexuality, acknowledging that when sex is nothing, it leads to this soullessness and callousness towards sexuality. So we can't say sex is nothing. The next lie is sex is everything. You can see how our culture is confused. Moving between the lie of sex is nothing and sex is everything. And so where does this lie come from and how does it play out? This next picture is Wilhelm Reich. Born in the late 1800s, he studied under Freud and he studied sexuality. In 1936, he wrote a book called The Sexual Revolution. You may have heard, you've heard of, you have heard of the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. Well, he wrote a book with the same title in the late 30s. He'd be considered a father of the sexual revolution. In his book, he wrote these words. I have become convinced that sexuality is the center around which revolves the whole of social life as well as the inner life of the individual. This man believed that sex was at the center of life. Sex is everything. His life ended up in disaster. He went from relationship to relationship, abandoned marriages, left his kids. His pursuit of happiness led to everyone else's sadness. And this is what happens when the creator gets replaced with the creation and we commit idolatry and we live out a life that says sex is everything. He ended up in prison. Long story, can't explain it all. Ends up dying in prison. You and I cannot live by these two lies. Sex is nothing and sex is everything. These, you can see these, these lies will eventually run into each other and cause great, dis- great destruction. I think Paul Tripp says it well. Looking to creation to get what only the creator can give you always results in addiction. The thing is not the problem. What you've asked of it is. What Romans 1 is talking about is disordered worship. The thing behind every sin that you and I commit, whether it's sexual or otherwise, is disordered worship. This is idolatry. Replacing the creation, the creator with the creation. And this plays out in multiple ways in our lives. I want to talk for a few minutes about how these lies are playing out in our culture today. As many of you know, I work with primarily young people, high school students, college students as interns. And I want to show you over the next few minutes of just how the younger generation especially has become jaded and cynical when it comes to sexuality and how they're viewing sexuality in our culture today. And what I intend to do is to show you how the brokenness is coming out in some surprising ways. Because the perception is, if I were to survey the room in most churches, the perception is that this generation is having more sex than all previous generations. But it's actually not true. Over the last hundred years, the generation that had the most sex in the U.S. were those born in the 1950s. They came of age in the 60s and 70s and during the revolution. And men born in the 50s averaged 19 partners throughout their lifetime. Women averaged five. 
And it's been, it's been declining ever since. Men born in the 90s average six partners. Women still average five. So the women are consistent. That wasn't meant to be a joke. I guess it's somehow a joke. The perception is that all these high schoolers are out there having sex in massive numbers. But from 1991 to 2017, the percentage of high schoolers who've had sex dropped from 54% down to 40%. Teen pregnancy is at an all-time low. You might say, well, declining sexual activity, declining teen pregnancy, these are good things, right? But it's not the full picture. What's happened is our sexual brokenness has just gone digital. And that's been the biggest shift in the last 20 years or so. Japan is a perfect example of this. In 2015, 43% of 18 to 34-year-olds in Japan were virgins. Just let that sink in. 43% of the young demographic in Japan were still virgins in this age bracket. But was this because Japan had suddenly adopted the Christian sexual ethic? No way. Japan is one of the biggest producers and consumers of pornography in the world today. The things I was reading that are happening in Japan right now, I can't even repeat on this stage because I want to keep this sermon PG-13. One Japanese-American named Roland Keltz says this about that generation in Japan. A generation that found the imperfect or unexpected demands of real-world relationships with women less enticing than the lure of the virtual world. And this is not just happening in the younger generations. This is happening in marriages all over our church, all over our nation, where people, God has gifted you with a real, live, flesh person And they're in the other room, this gift to you from God, and we opt for a digital version on the screen. And it's happening with men and women, and it's destroying relationships. Someone else, this is a 17-year-old American young man, he says, I had two choices, hang out with girls and constantly think sexually about them, or avoid them entirely. I chose to avoid them. I have never been in a relationship in my 17 years, and the big reason is porn and my association with it. At this point, that makes me sad. Pornography has desensitized teens into not enjoying or wanting intimacy. There's a recent study that came out that shows county by county in the U.S. as broadband internet came into certain counties. Believe it or not, there are places where there's no broadband. My parents live in rural Virginia, and they still don't have it. I know you're thinking, that sounds like third world. But there are places that don't have it. But as they track county by county in certain parts of the U.S., as broadband internet came online county by county by county, they recognized the trend. Teen pregnancy went down 7 to 13% as broadband came into those counties. Now, again, you might say, well, that's good, right? That's an improvement. But what happened was the brokenness just went digital. And so kids are leaving the house less. They're going out less. They're dating less. 
They're getting into relationships less, and it's left a generation of young people jaded and cynical about sexuality and intimacy. And the biggest concern I have as a person that works with the younger generation is I think we are producing a generation of porn addicts. And if you're someone who, if you're a parent and you are giving your kids unfiltered access on their phones, on their laptops, in your home to internet, unfiltered, that would be the equivalent in your generation of your dad taking a box of Playboys and putting them in your closet and saying, try not to look at that. This is what we're doing to our younger generation. So I think the year was 1996 when I moved to Texas from the East Coast. Moved into a house with a bunch of guys, a bunch of godly men, and this is when the internet was like first becoming a thing. Parents, explain this to your kids. They'll understand it later on. But you guys remember dial-up? Remember the noise? Explain those dark ages to your kids. Remember the noise? Sounded like a video game out of the 1980s. So there's dial-up. And I knew just the temptation was real. So I, I thought, I don't want internet in my room. I'll, I'll look at stuff I shouldn't look at. I, I don't want the temptation. And there was this one guy at our house who had internet in his room. And one day he's at school, and no one's home except me. And I go to the computer to look up my email. Then I'm reading about sports. Then I see a, a, a place to click on the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue. And I hit click. And then I hit click again. And I hit click again. And it wasn't like I had this moment of moral clarity and conviction. It was just taking too long. It was dial-up. And so I got up and walked away and went to my room. And a couple of hours later, he comes home, comes and sits in my room and says, hey, Dave, so uh, how was the swimsuit edition? And I was busted. And I will tell you, I thank God for people like that in my life that are willing to, willing to call me out in my own sexual brokenness. We've got to guard against it. I've always had an understanding of how broken I am in this area. And so after those situations in college, I always said to myself, I'm only going to have internet under certain conditions. So currently in our family, it looks like I've got covenant eyes on my screens, my, my phones, my our iPad, our, our computers. I want accountability, not because I'm strong, but because I'm weak. And everyone in this room is in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. So we've got to, we have to guard against it. If you're struggling in these areas, I want to invite you, would you just go confess that to someone that you trust, a brother or sister in Christ? This is what the church is for? This is the body of Christ? We're here for each other to be, I don't even like the word accountability partner, just a friend that you're honest with. That's what it should be. But would you just go and 
confess that to someone. I think the book of James says it well. That we're to confess our sins to each other, not just to God. There is something healing whenever brothers and sisters confess sin to each other. In fact, Covenant Eyes, a great company, a way that God is redeeming technology, they are a filtering and accountability software, and they have this really new, they came out last Sunday, they have this new feature on their, on their stuff where um, they have screen technology accountability, meaning whatever comes across someone's screen, they've got a way of holding people accountable to, and you set up a system where it can go as an email to someone that you trust as your accountability, your honest friend. And so I encourage you to find ways to guard against these kinds of things. But the big picture is the younger generation has experienced this kind of brokenness, and they are cynical and jaded when it comes to how they're living out their sexuality and what they think about it. Many are delaying marriage for years and years and years. Many are saying, I don't even want to get married. I just feel like it's not worth it because we're seeing the brokenness play out in our culture. So that's the younger generation. I also want to talk to you about a very pertinent topic in our culture today, which is homosexuality. And I will tell you that the longest message I ever preached in the Outback with students was on this topic a couple of years ago, and it was over an hour. So I can't do it justice in 10 minutes, but I'm going to try to cover what I can here. This next passage in Romans addresses those that are living the lifestyle of homosexuality. Look at verse 26. Not those that struggle with temptation, those living the lifestyle. Romans 1.26 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, this this addresses those living out homosexual actions, not someone who's just tempted to. Now, I want you to not lose the greater context here. This is about exchanging the creator with the creation. The truth of God for lies. This leads to dishonoring God with our bodies. The bigger point that Paul's making here is about idolatry. Beneath all of our sexual desires is a worship malfunction. It's the same root, just a different fruit. We're all broken in various ways, but some people break a little bit different. It's the same root, just a different fruit. At the root of any kind of brokenness is this replacement, replacing the creator with the creation, and it's just we're all broken in different ways. So the culture says that you're born that way, to quote Lady Gaga. That is a partial truth in the sense that we're all born broken in our sexuality. It's a partial truth. But the church has made an error in saying that it's just a choice. That is a partial truth. The lifestyle is the desires often are not We don't choose our temptations. We choose our reactions. You might say it like this. 
Homosexual acts are sinful, but homosexual desires are a result of sin. And when I say that, I do not mean that someone sinned in their youth and God has cursed them with these desires. This is not what I'm saying. If anyone has same-sex desire, it's a reminder that we're all broken in our sexuality. But I want to say one clear thing this morning. If you struggle in this particular area, you are not more broken than anyone else. You are not more broken than anyone else in this room. And I want to stand on this stage today and I want to say to you that if you have ever felt or it's been implied that you're more broken, if church leadership or church congregants have ever implied that to you, I stand before you today and say we repent. We are sorry that that message has been conveyed from the church in general, but from the church in particular. The church has been guilty through the years saying that there's varsity sins and JV sins. We've all done it. And usually the JV sins are the ones that I struggle with, the ones that are down here. And the varsity sins, those are the ones out in the culture, way out there, the ones that are removed from me. And we see sin as this gradation, this level. I think Sam Albury says it really well. Sam Albury is a pastor in England. He's actually a same-sex attracted person. He's a believer, but he's living and walking in obedience. And he's done, he's written one of the books I put at the bottom of your bulletin. He's a, I would say, listen and read everything you can by Sam Albury. He is profound, a profound man. He says this, the presence of same-sex desire in some of us is not an indication that we have turned from God more than others or have been given over by God to further sin more than others. There is a parallel with suffering. The presence of suffering in someone's life does not mean they've sinned more than someone suffering less. And so why do some struggle? Well, I can't answer that question any more than I can say why some people suffer. But here's what someone told me recently. I have a friend who is same-sex attracted, and he said this to me. He said, if it wasn't for my struggle with same-sex attraction, I'm not sure I'd be a Christian. And I just thought, what, what does that mean? He said, well, because, because I want to do everything on my own. I want to be self-sufficient. I like being in control and he said, if it wasn't for this particular sin struggle in my life, I'm not sure I'd ever really see my need for a Savior. And I began thinking, that's really where all of our sin should lead us to. All of our sin should point us to the reality that we're in need of a Savior. But for him, this particular sin struggle was the one that he said, I can't do this on my own. I need a Savior. I need a Redeemer. And so he says, this is what led him to Christ. And I, I just said, 
I'm not even sure what to do with that theologically. That, that sounds like some weird territory for me, but I'll just trust you with what you're saying with this. But I think all of our sin struggles should lead us to that place. There are two responses generally in the church in relation to this topic. Endorsement or disgust. Both are wrong. And both are sinful. Paul calls out both. Look at the text. Look down at Romans 1.32. Skip to verse 32. He says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, when Paul says deserve to die, he's talking about all sin, not just one sin. He's discussing all sin. There's a big list in verses 28 to 31, which I don't have time to read. Read that. It indicts all of us. But Paul's saying all sin, we deserve separation from God because of our sin. But there is this groundswell of people in the church that are giving endorsement to what God clearly calls sin. Look again at what it says in verse 32. It says, they, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So endorsement is not the right response. When we endorse, we become just as guilty as the ones actively doing the sin. The only way to be compassionate is to be truthful but with compassion. Being, avoiding the truth of the reality is not a way of showing compassion. And I know that whenever we read this, read read Romans 1, many, this is written to Jewish Christians that are living in Rome. And so the first chapter is all about the gospel for the pagan, the gospel for the Gentile, the gospel for the lost person. And you could imagine the Jewish Christians as they're reading Romans 1, they're sitting there thinking, that's right, Paul, give it to those people. Give it to that culture. Give it to them, Paul. And then Paul says, well, let me write chapter 2, verse 1. That's for the Jewish Christian who's self-righteous. He says this, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. As Paul is calling out those giving endorsement, he then calls out the self-righteous. Listen, there is so much back and forth in the culture wars between the church and groups of people. But listen, if there's any group that should understand brokenness, it should be Christians. If any group should understand how lost we are apart from Christ, it should be Christians. Because so much of the time I see in the culture wars this back and forth between the Christians and the world out there just shouting at each other, and it's like we're expecting someone who's not yet a believer to act like a believer, And we cannot make that mistake. And so we cannot be someone who is self-righteous. If there's anyone who should have, Christians should have a PhD in brokenness. Because we know where it comes from. We know how our lives would be apart from Christ. We should understand brokenness better than anyone 
in the world. And yet so often, we assume the self-righteous stance and just shout and scream at the culture. I think many Christians today just want to bring the heat and not the light. And so I want to talk to you about light. When you think about sexuality in light of the gospel, we can say sex is a sign. Sex is meant to point beyond itself. It's meant to point us to God and who he is. It's meant to point us to the gospel. Tim talked about this two weeks ago, how marriage is meant to point us beyond itself to the gospel. The same is true with sexuality. They're meant to point beyond themselves. Sex is meant to be fulfilled in the covenant of marriage because God is a covenant God. God gave us sex in marriage to reinforce the covenant. If someone asks you, why is sex outside marriage wrong? You can say, it's given to us by God to be a reinforcement of the covenant, and it can't reinforce the covenant if there is no covenant. It just becomes a plaything if it's separated from the covenant of marriage, and it's not what God intended for it to be. And so when our culture sees sex as nothing or sex as everything, we in the church get to hold sex up as a sign that points beyond itself to something greater than itself, and it's God and who he is, and it's a picture of the gospel. I love how Trevin Wax says this. He says, the church must elevate sexuality when the world diminishes it, and we must knock the legs out from under sexuality when the world exalts it. So what happens when we see sexuality in light of the gospel? Well, we see lives change. We see miracles happen. Do you know why, when I look at our culture, why I don't feel hopeless? Because we're a church that believes the gospel. Because we're a people that believes in the power of God to change people. We've all been changed by him if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, he offers that to you to be changed and transformed by him, sanctified by him. And so I get excited knowing that we have the chance in our culture to hold up sex as a sign, showing, heralding the gospel as we do it. Showing our culture what its intent is, what its purpose is. And we get to be the ones that do that when it comes to our sexuality. There have been and there will continue to be a lot of refugees from the sexual revolution. And the question you're going to have to wrestle with is, are we going to be the kind of church that's ready to receive them and love them and welcome them? So whenever we see sex as a sign in light of the gospel, we're going to see lives change in miraculous ways. I want you to hear a story by Jackie Hill Perry. And she was same-sex attracted, and now she's has a family and a husband. I want you to hear her story. Let's watch. My childhood was, I don't want to say typical, but I think typical to those growing up in black communities. Dad was pretty much inconsistent. I saw him maybe every 
few years, he would just pop in, be in my life for six months, and then pop back out and just show up whenever he felt like it. My mother worked every weekend, so I would spend Sundays with my aunt, who was a Christian. Um, and so she would take me to church with her like every single Sunday, which was incredibly boring, but I enjoyed the popcorn that the kids got and the Skittles. Childhood was a mixture of abandonment, but not knowing that's what that was, mixed with glimpses of God through my aunt, mixed with seeing my mother work hard. I think middle school and high school was me chasing after love from people. I wanted people to tell me that I'm something, that I'm significant, that I'm somebody. And women, I think, uh, became one of the main sources of that for me. I was confused. I didn't know what to do. I had these feelings that seemed very natural, these thoughts that seemed super normal to me, but I knew it wasn't normal to culture. I grew up in black church. That's like a no-no, <laughs> is to be gay. And so it was projected all the time that this is not okay, but I had read the scriptures pertaining to it being a sin. And so I just believed it. I didn't try to talk myself out of it, because to me, I felt like what I read in the scriptures was correlating with the conviction I felt. This feeling correlates with what this is saying. <laughs> it's like, it's not an isolated situation, but I still didn't know how to come to terms with this is how I feel, so I'm gonna do it. The things I knew about scripture, it seemed like they just would not get out of my head. It was just like, God is everywhere, and it was just getting on my nerves. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be saved because what I thought Christianity to be was people that just didn't do stuff. You don't listen to secular music, you wear long dresses, you go to church all the time, and you don't curse. If that's what Christianity is, I'm cool on that. I already didn't have peace, but the reminder of the truth was increasing my awareness of my lack of peace. And so I called uh, one of my cousins who was a believer, and she was like, you know what? I believe that God is going to show you how much you need him. I'm like, okay, whatever. I think over the course of some months, that's when I got arrested. My dad ended up passing away from a motorcycle accident, which really broke me because it was kind of like this realization that we'll never talk. From there, me and my mother's relationship was just like, we were not close, we were not cool. It was like everything I was doing, my entire life became uncomfortable. It became isolated, it became just lonely. When I was 19 and feeling God speak to my heart and tell me what you're doing will be the death of you. Like this is not an idea anymore that sin will kill me. It's not an idea anymore that God is not pleased with this. Like this is reality and I have to deal with it today. When I reckoned with that, I knew that I could not save myself. I knew I could not walk away from these things because I enjoyed them way too much. And so I knew from Bible study at church when I was five, you die for people like me. You said you'll forgive people like me. And so I'll just believe that. I was in a church in two weeks wearing girl clothes in a week. That was strange. I wasn't used to wearing regular bras and I had to understand how to sit like a woman again because I was used to sitting like a guy. Just relearning womanness. He did what he had to do to grab me because I would not have chose God apart from God choosing me. Hear these words by Russell Moore. He says, there are two sorts of churches that will not be able to reach the sexual revolution's refugees. A church that has given up on the truth of scriptures, 
including on marriage and sexuality, and has nothing to say to a fallen world. And a church that screams with outrage at those who disagree will have nothing to say to those who are looking for a new birth. We must stand with conviction and with kindness, with truth and with grace. We must hold to our views and love those who hate us for them. We must not only speak Christian truths, we must speak with a Christian accent. We must say what Jesus has revealed. We must say those things the way Jesus does, with mercy and with an invitation to new life. Some Christians will be tempted to anger, lashing out at the world around us with a narrative of decline. That temptation is wrong. God decided when we would be born and when we'd be born again. We have the spirit and the gospel. To think that we deserve to live in different times is to tell God that we deserve a better mission field than the one he has given us. Let's seek the kingdom. Let's stand with the gospel. Let's fear our God, but let's not fear our mission field. Father, we are thankful for today. We are thankful that you show us in your word your intent, your purpose, and your design. And we praise you for that. God, we know that there's not a person in this room that's not been, that's not broken in some way in their sexuality. We all are. And we know it's, it's one of the things that's a part of us that causes great shame, causes great sorrow, and causes um, a lot of destruction in our lives. But God, we pray that that reality would not keep us from understanding this is a gift from you to us. We pray that we'd see that today, just how good you are in your gifts to us, that you're a good God. I also pray this morning that um, where there needs to be conviction, there would be conviction. Where there needs to be repentance, there'd be repentance. And I pray that you would do your sanctifying work in this church and beyond as it relates to our sexuality. God, help us to be a church that loves people and loves you well and keep those things together. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great week.